Welcome to the Coach In Podcast presented by Society 54. This podcast will showcase the best revenue generation and strategic marketing tips for attorneys, professional services providers, and in-house business development and marketing teams, as well as some insights on personal development and some fun surprises here and there. We will also showcase some of the brightest stars in the industry and learn more about their experiences and roads to success. Welcome to the Coach M Podcast. I am extremely excited to welcome a very, very special guest, uh, Justin Ergler from GlaxoSmithKline. Justin, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. I know you're an extremely, I won't say busy man, but you're very I mean, busy as a cliche word these days, but you, know, you, you definitely have a, a very hectic schedule and you have a very impactful role at GSK. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do there? Yeah, the primary focus of my role is engaging our law firms and alternative fee arrangements for the services that they provide to GSK Legal. Um, GSK does it a little bit differently than, than, than most uh, clients in that we are almost exclusively on flat fees with our firms, which means no hourly rates, no shadow billing, uh, nothing behind the scenes there. We, we agree to a flat fee for a defined scope of work as best as we can define it. Uh, we set a payment schedule for that flat fee, whether it be just an equal monthly uh, 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 um, invoice or it be milestone payments, depending on the, the nature of the representation, if it's a transaction, if it's a litigation, um, and we pay based on that. And now, um, if there are material changes that occur during the course of the matter, we, we, we make adjustments. So. My primary focus of my role is when we have a need for outside counsel, it is selecting the right outside counsel to engage uh, for that particular matter, and then getting that fee arrangement in place. Um, I also, I, a, a big part of my role is relationships with not only the partners and our, and our relationship partners who are, who are great at our firms, but with those business professionals at the law firm. Uh, so that we can talk about the business aspects because the lawyers, that's really not what they want to do. They didn't go to law school to talk about fees and payment schedules and things like that. So developing those good relationships with my business counterparts at our law firms allows us to have frank and honest business conversations, which can oftentimes cut to the chase and make things much more efficient and allow the lawyers to focus on the lawyering. And that's fantastic. And I think that that shift is, a, is one that we're seeing in the industry that a lot of companies are going to. And it's it's great to, to hear that you guys have adopted that. And, and can you kind of get I me, mean, it sounds like it's going extremely well from your side. Uh, you Can you kind of dive into how it's made your, your life easier, made your company work more efficiently, made the relationships more smooth? Um, yeah, I, I, I think with the transition to flat fees, Really, we put the ball in the law firm's court when it comes to profitability, when it comes to things like that. So for us, it's made it a lot easier because our attorneys aren't expected to be diving into line item by line item, hourly rate invoices, and how many hours did so-and-so spend on drafting this motion, and why did the partner review this motion twice before it was submitted, etc. It gets our attorneys out of that game, right? Now, on the flip side, for, for the law firms, again, I'm not naive to think that they don't still track their hours internally for internal plumbing purposes. But again, they're able to staff appropriately, right? They're able to put their best people, their most, the more efficient they are on a flat fee matter, the higher their profitability is going to be. 
And GSK as a client has made the conscious decision years ago that we're okay with our law firms being very profitable. If they have built a better mousetrap, they're able to submit and win business against other firms with competitive flat fees. If they've invested in technology, invested in LPM and things like that, and it allows them to reap a good upside on a GSK matter, well, then good for them because we've gotten a good deal in the marketplace, right? So now it's all up to them. On the flip side, though, for the firms, if they aren't efficient, right, if we lay out a body of work and they come back to us and they say, hey, we're way over on hours here, that's not good enough. They're not going to get more money for that, right? They need to point to, hey, look, we both assumed that we would only be deposing two experts in this litigation. We ended up having to depose eight, or we anticipate having to depose eight now. Okay, that's a material change in work, right? Mm -hmm. So that material change, we can talk about a fee adjustment there. So the law firms have to not only is there an upside for them, but if they haven't invested in technology, they don't understand their cost. Um, they, they, they haven't invested in those business professionals that can crunch the numbers and say, yes, we can do it for X dollars. Um, then they have the potential to not do well on a flat fee engagement. So overall, I think the trend of law firms in investing in those business resources, those business-focused resources, those project management resources, and also technology to do things smarter, better, faster. Um, I, I think overall, it has been it has been good for the firms, albeit a transition from what they most of the lawyers, especially the older partners, have been born and raised on. It's, it's a different world now for them. But the ones that have said, "Hey, you know what? We're going to change with GSK. GSK is one of our key clients. If they're changing, we got to change with them if we if we want to keep working with them." The, the ones that have made that con conscious decision, I think, by and large, are quite happy with the way we do things. Yeah, and I think that that trend, I think you you've see more firms in the industry now that are understanding that this shift is happening. Um, there are those that will probably be the consistent deniers to a point until they understand that their feet are on the edge of the ledge and they've got to make a decision. And at that point, a lot of their competitors have already made that shift and are, are moving at a, a rapid pace of efficiency and, and leveraging technology to make their clients more happy and, and bring that client satisfaction up. I will say that when we made this shift to the flat fees, right, um, and, and also we, we have a selection process that we created at GSK that's a bit different than other clients as well. When we made the, the, the transition to kind of a new selection process or a new selection methodology and the flat fees, we had kind of a panel, a body of firms, right, that we consistently went to. Uh, that panel has shifted over the years because there were some firms that didn't get it and they didn't change with us. They put their heads in the sand and they don't have, they, their work with GSK has either significantly dwindled or gone away completely. Then there are other firms that maybe didn't have a big footprint with us, mm. but they said, hey, GSK, we're coming with you. We want to show you what, you, what we can do. And their footprint has, has, has grown considerably. So when we made the changes, uh, um, since then, there's definitely been a, a, a shift in kind of uh, uh, our, our portfolio of law firms that we use. But I'd say we've been pretty consistent in the firms that we use over the last, I don't know, four years or so. Um, it's been a been a pretty consistent bunch. 
And can you, I mean, without going into too much detail or revealing things that you, you may or may not want to, is there anything uh, within that selection process that you think stands out when you're, when you're looking at firms? I mean, yes, the, the technology and the ability to move to the flat fees, but is there something, be it, um, you know, an internal process or the communication level or the ability to spot business problems? What, what's involved in that selection process that makes a firm stand out, whether they're a large firm or a smaller boutique firm? Well, it's called the Outside Council Selection Initiative, OCSI for short. And the way, it, the, the way it's kind of different is most clients have a preferred panel. And every two or three years, they'll run a big RFP. They'll select X number of firms to be on that panel. They'll get preferred hourly rates, right, that they'll negotiate. And then from then on out, uh, in-house attorneys, when they have a new matter for outside counsel, they'll select the firm they want to use off of that roster and they've already got negotiated rates, and they'll go from there, right? For GSK, we don't have a rigid preferred panel necessarily. Now, we do have go-to firms. So usually when we have a new matter, there is the, like, the list of usual suspects that are invited to pitch, right? Um, but but the, the, the focus of the OCSI program is that we have a unique litigation. Um, it is a product liability matter in XYZ jurisdiction, uh, and we look and figure out between generally three to five firms that we want to invite to pitch. We define kind of the scope of work that we anticipate, how many depositions, what's the volume of documents, and so on and so forth, right? Um, how do we see this playing out as of now, knowing that there's things we don't know? We send that to firms. We send them a standardized template, and they send back to us not – Tell us about your product liability uh, a, a practice area. Tell me about all the attorneys at your firm. No, we want to know who is going to be on this team. Who's going to be the lead partner? Who are you know the, the, the co-partner? Who are the associates on this team? We, we want to know that if we hire you, who will we be working with on a day-to-day -day basis? Then we ask them for the experience of those attorneys, right? Tell us where, the, the, the phrase I always use is closest to the pen. Right. So if you've represented a peer pharma company in a similar product liability matter in that jurisdiction, that is close to the pin on point experience. So we want to hear about. So here's your team. Why is this the team that you're proposing? What in their backgrounds makes them the most appropriate attorneys for this matter? Then we'll ask them for their key impressions. Right. So you told us about your previous matters you've handled for either GSK or other clients. This specific matter. What are your key impressions of this? What are you seeing as some potential roadblocks? What would your approach, your recommended approach be here? And then based on that body of work and the assumptions and tasks that we've laid out, we ask them for initial flat fee offers, right? Based on phases of the matter as we see it, as we see it uh, 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 um, transpiring over, over the life of that matter. We also ask the firms for their input on, is there anything we missed in our assumptions that are cost drivers? Hey, GSK, you told us you want to bid if this thing would go to trial. You didn't specify how long you'd anticipate the trial being. We would anticipate it would be a three-week trial. Another firm might say we anticipate this being a five-week trial. So once we get all those submissions back, okay, from, again, generally between three to five firms, the managing attorney, for that matter, will have a review of, 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 the, of the RFP submissions. If there is a firm or firms that 
although they're a great firm overall, they just don't have the same level of on-point experience as the other firms we've invited. We sometimes will shortlist, okay? And then we look at those assumptions and we see if there's any conflicts between the firms and those assumptions or any assumptions that a firm had that we said, oh, geez, yeah, that's really good. We want to add that. So at that point, those shortlisted firms will get a revised set of assumptions. So again, every the, the, the focus of that or the key for the, the key uh, a, a point there is that all the firms are working off of the same scope of work. They all understand the same scope of work. So we've created a level playing field. The firms then submit revised bids based on those uh, that new set of assumptions. Then we take it to an auction where the firms get to see how their, how their fees by phase compare with the other shortlisted firms. Once that auction's over, we have the final fee offers from each firm, the managing attorney, and oftentimes, in, in this case, our head of litigation, et cetera, will review the overall proposals and will make a selection based on a scorecard of the best overall value proposition provided. So that combination of the fees, obviously, or, or, or we wouldn't be running the auction, right? But also, how, from a qualitative standpoint, a substantive standpoint, how do we score their team? How do, how do we rate their experience? How do we rate their key impressions, et cetera? And then there's also a diversity component. GSK is big on inclusion and diversity, especially in the legal department. So we look at the composition of that team. And is, is the staffing that they're proposing, does it have a, a proper amount of diversity? Really looking for the diversity of thought there, right? Not just at the junior associate ranks. We want to see a mix throughout the team at the partner level, the whole way down through the junior associate level. So those things are all rated on a one to five scale. And it spits out a final score at the bottom and the highest score wins. Um, it is not always, probably about only about 50% of the time, is it the lowest price firm that wins. Um, but generally, since we've been doing this process for about nine years now, the firms know that in order to have a good shot, they at least have to be pretty competitive on fees. So the firms generally end up very, very close to one another, which from a business guy standpoint, that's the best case scenario for me. Because at that point, we've effectively taken cost out of the equation. So we can go to the managing attorney and say, pick the firm that you think is going to knock this out of the park, because everybody's pretty much equal on fees. So that's kind of a, in a nutshell, that's how the process works. And from start to finish, we generally run these in about a week. Wow. Yeah, and it's and and I, I've seen some, plenty of scenarios like that, and and I but I think the way you've laid it out to your point, and you made the point towards the end there, is that from a business standpoint, you can when you when you get firms that close on price, you, you may not be the lowest price firm, but if you can make a case for one, your diversity of of team and diversity of thought approaching the matter, two, your assumptions or any any additional points that you've pointed out in your response. Um, that either GSK overlooked or that here's an assumption or here's here's how we would approach this matter. So it looks like it's a little bit more of a sliding scale, I guess, is the only way to to explain it, where you could you could not necessarily be the lowest price, but your your understanding of the needs of GSK are so spot on, closest to the pin in your words, that 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 fee doesn't necessarily break your deal in this in in competing for this matter, correct? 
Correct. Yeah. And, 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 and I guess one thing on the back end here is we make a selection at that point, but the other firms that weren't selected, they're given the opportunity to contact the managing attorney for a brief feedback session on, hey, based on your proposal, here were the parts that I liked, but here's where another, here's where the firm we, that we selected won the day. We liked your team. We thought their experience looked pretty good. But your key impressions, you kind of mailed it in, right? The firm we selected, they had a novel approach that really resonated X, Y, and Z, right? So the firms can take that feedback back, and the next time they're invited to an event, they are going to focus more on those key impressions and make sure they do a better job there. Um, and sometimes it's just, again, since we've been doing this so long, we've kind of had a survival of the fittest convergence, if you will. Uh, um, the firms know that they need to bring it in, in, in order to have a shot. Okay. So the most common complaint I get now from our managing attorneys is, you know, Justin, I, I, I could pick any one of these firms and I think they do a great job. They're all close on price. What am I supposed to tell these people? Right. And sometimes that's just that that's just the case. Hey, you had a great proposal, but the firm we selected, there was just this one thing, right. That, that, that they had that nobody else had. Maybe, it was they had represented GSK in a similar matter just last year, and nobody else had that. So uh, it's, it's, sometimes it's difficult. And, and, and to be honest, there, there have been numerous occasions where the firms were all equal on the substance and the financials. And diversity is that they, the, the, the diversity of the team is what won it for one firm over the other. And there's no stronger message from a client, in my mind, to push inclusion and diversity than to tell a firm that, hey, if not for your lack of diversity on your team, you would have gotten this two and a half million dollar matter. Wow. That's a pretty powerful message to take back. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think it's, you know, I think that that, that piece of it too, and, and I love the, 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 the mention of survival of the fittest, because to me, and we, we talk a lot about client experience and client journey and, and the active listening piece, especially when seeking feedback, because one, there are some that are very averse to seeking that feedback from their client for one reason or the other. And then two, it's what you do with that feedback. So are you taking that feedback actively and circling back with your team, circling back with your firm leadership, circling back with your business team, your LPM team, B, you know, BD team, whatever that is, and saying, hey, look, here's why we didn't win that. How do we fix this moving forward? Absolutely. I, absolutely. And, and, and again, there, there are firms that they've done that and they were invited to a few events, didn't win, didn't win got the feedback, took it on board, got more feedback, took it on board, and then they started winning. And, and there's one firm I'm thinking of in particular that is now one of our most used firms that started off. The reason why they're one of our most used firms is because they were invited to these OCSI events and they really kind of honed in on what GSK was looking for and outside counsel. So now when they're invited, they've got a pretty good shot at winning because they are zeroed in on the proposals they know they've got to be competitive on price. They know they have to throw us their A team, and uh, they they become very successful with us. I, I love hearing that too because it's it really is just all about how you can be consistent, how you can be persistent, and also making the changes. Some of those changes aren't going to happen overnight. I mean, if you've got if you lose a deal like that because your team isn't as diverse, you either have to get team you know start working with attorneys within your firm that would would fulfill that need for outside for your client 
maybe they don't have experience with that type of client. Maybe that's something that you need to work it up to. Or maybe there is a, a, a lateral recruit that you're looking at that has that experience that does fit that mold that would obviously win the, win the, the deal for you in the future. But that's, you know, that's not an overnight change. That's not something that changes overnight. So um, it's really important that clients are not, or firms are not even not only listening, but also looking at the long-term um, implications of those changes as well. Absolutely. So I think one of the one of the million-dollar questions that floats around uh, the industry and, and firms are always talking about it is when you look at you know you talk about your preferred counsel and obviously that that does shift from time to time, but inevitably firms are always wondering how do I get the attention of a client and how do I make our you know strength of service or our strength of knowledge or our expertise or the the history that we have working in this industry how do you or how does your team hear about these new firms and I think there are there are some that lean on the thought leadership content creation there are some that really re, you know their the referral source is really their go-to route um, how is it that you all go about, hearing about these new firms. So there's a, let's say there's a particular type of litigation that this smaller firm excels in, um, and they, within your industry, is it something that you, that you guys engage in the thought leadership, article creation, videos, podcasts, or is it more referral or is it a blend of both? I think it's a blend really. And, and a, a lot of it depends on the attorney. Um, I know in our litigation group, they're big on things like lunch and learns where maybe a firm that we, haven't used much or haven't used yet uh, comes in and gives a gives a lunch and learn to our to our uh, in-house litigators and sometimes they impress and hey let's give them a shot in the next selection of that and see what they can do um, I, so yeah I, I I think it's a mix there in the legal industry uh, word of mouth and referrals are always going to be in my mind the strongest thing um, because you tr- if you trust somebody and they say hey we use this lawyer at this firm and she was outstanding. That's going to speak louder, I think, to most attorneys than reading an article or something like that. Um, but I would definitely say it's a mix of both. Um, and, and, and it varies sometimes, again, from practice area to practice area and attorney to attorney. Um, I think that once you do get your foot in the door, I think investing in those, in those business resources is very important because um, in-house counsel, just like everybody has as we said earlier, has, has a lot on their plate. So making yourself easy to do business with, because more and more, there's folks like me at client, and in-house attorneys have to deal with folks like me, right? So if you're a firm that we use consistently and you come in very competitive on fees, but you're always coming back to us complaining about material change when really it's questionable, you're always coming back asking for more money, you're not able to stick to your fee, you're things like that, right? You're making yourself difficult to do business with. Uh, um, the next go around, if a managing attorney has a decision to make and there's two firms that are equal, one firm is always streamlined, everything goes smooth, etc. The other firm, we, we've always got problems with and I have to go talk to Justin and then that takes time out of my day, right? You're going to pick the one that's easier to work with. You really are. So, um, I, I, I'd say making yourself as easy to do business with as possible um, is important. I'd say kind of along those same lines, uh, limiting surprises to uh, to your client, right? It's one thing to come and say, hey, I need more money because we see this thing happening. It's another thing to come and say, hey, six months ago, this thing happened and now I'm underwater, right? Those are two very different conversations. 
because internally that means that in-house attorney has to go ask for more money too, right? So how easy are you making your your firm to work with is very important. Um, is there anything else I would say? I think growing more and more is being able to look around the corner for your client, right? Clients hire law firms and clients look for law firms based on their expertise. So if there's something that's especially if it's a new area for a client, are you thinking about and not, not just addressing the issue your client has today, but are you helping that client to see around the corner about what might happen, what might be the issues of tomorrow or a year from now or three years from now? And how are they preparing themselves to avoid as much risk as possible in that new area for that client. So I think that's something that, that really endears firms to GSK and, and to other clients as well. Yeah, and, and that last point I, I love because I think one of the things too that um, having worked in, you know, focusing on client service and, and running some client teams, the one thing that I hear from in-house counsel consistently over and over again is that business talk. Um, not only just in, you know, in, in your in looking around the corner for the client, which I think is absolutely critical, but it's also the, you know, I understand that you understand the legalese of this, but let me know and talk to me about the business implications because then, and it kind of goes back to don't create more work for me, but if you can give me your thoughts in a business case that if, if it's either a written memo or if it's a communication that we're having with um, our board members that I don't have to translate what you're trying to say but you're giving me the business case and the business impact and the things that are, that are going to be easily translatable or transferable to a C-suite member where I don't have to spend If I'm in-house counsel, I don't have to spend extra time and do extra work to translate your legal dissertation about what this is. I need something that's on the ready to go that I can take into a conversation without having to make that translation. Is that something that you're seeing more firms kind of have that business approach versus that legal approach? I, 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 I'd say absolutely. I mean, for our in-house attorneys at GSK, um, our general counsel is, 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 is very keen on them becoming partners to the business, right? Still, still, still acting as lawyers, right? But being partners of the business. And sometimes in companies, legal departments are known as the people that say no all the time, right? So how can we be more partners of the business while still protecting the company? But being able to talk the, that business language is very important. And kind of as you said, if that law firm or that outside count, that, that partner is able to translate that so that it's ready to go, to go to that presentation to the board, et cetera, that makes in-house counsel's life, again, a lot easier. It makes your firm easier to work with. But also more and more our outside counsel is liaising with our in-house counsel directly with those business clients. So what is your relationship like with those business, with your clients' clients, if you will? Um, so, yeah, I think that is definitely a growing trend. I only see it getting bigger. Um, and, and, and it's the same as everything else. There are some firms that I think are out ahead and there are some firms that are still not there yet. Agreed. And, and I think that's that's where you're going to start seeing some separation in the pack from from a client experience standpoint, because it's becoming so critical in the in the engagement of outside counsel and to your point of how you're making it easy for us to work with you. Um, and I think those firms that, that get it are, are starting to kind of pull away from the pack. And those that, you know, again, going back to the resistance to change, uh, those that are refusing to have that approach are going to find themselves looking at, looking at a lot of taillights in the distance. Um, so one thing that w- along those lines, too, when, you t- when we talk about firms that are engaged in a high client service acumen, 
do you see a trend or do you guys enjoy having firms, you know, you mentioned the lunch and learns, but from a client, just a client service check-in standpoint, um, one, do you, do you, do you and your team enjoy having firms say, Hey, we'd love to come visit, sit down and talk about your business goals, what's going on. And then with that, if that is the case, is that something where, um, firms can differentiate themselves by having a business professional, be it uh, a, a legal project management or a finance person or a business development person who sees the, the forest for the trees from a business standpoint, does that differentiate them in that client visit? Uh, I, I would say to a lot of clients, I, I would probably say the answer is yes. At GSK, we, when we have kind of our firm relationship meetings, um, our expectation, and it's communicated to the, to the firms, our expectation is that their business lead will be there. So if, if we're going to schedule the meeting, don't, don't you know, tell us this date and then say, yeah, but my business person can't make it. Well, then we need, well, then we need to find a new date. So GSK, I think we demand a bit more that we have their business professional. Oftentimes, they'll bring their head of inclusion and diversity because they know that's very important to GSK Legal. Um, uh, their client value officer, there's many different names for, the, for those roles, or their chief pricing officer. Um, we expect those people to be at those relationship meetings along with that relationship partner and those key lawyers that do work for GSK. So I think a GSK is not necessarily a differentiator, but, um, but even in those meetings, you can tell the firms that are bringing their business person there simply because GSK told them to. And then there are firms that, are, that would be bringing their business person regardless because that person is an integral member of the firm. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, to that point too, I think there are a lot of firms that feel like there's this obligation, be it from a business standpoint, be it from a, from a diversity and inclusion standpoint, that if they, if they show a good aesthetic, then that's going to check the box for clients. And now I think that, that, that truth is showing through that to your point. Yes. It's wonderful that you're, that you're acknowledging these things are important to us, but if you're just showing face, if you're just standing up a cardboard stand up just to make it look like you have a business professional in the room and they're just there to, to show face, that's almost to me, I would think if I'm, if I'm the client that would do more damage than good, because it shows you're kind of pandering the response. But if you have somebody to your point that is engaged with the firm, that is part of the conversation that has helped driving strategy, that has helped driving the client service, that is where the impact is made. Absolutely. So is there, and this is, this is, this will be a, a great question. And I'm interested to hear your response on this. Are there trends in the legal industry from, from an outside counsel standpoint that you would love to either see end or continue? So are there things that firms are doing that you are like, Oh God, knock it off. Or are there things that you're saying, this is great. We need more of this. Well, I guess the obvious thing that I would, I'd like to see continue and expand is the, is the, Utilization and investment in business side professionals, LPM and technology. I think that's, we, we, we've been talking about that the whole way through this year. Um, what would I like to see end? I guess kind of going hand in hand with that, I would like to see more proactivity from firms in communicating about the matter and how, it, with folks like me, about the matter and how we're doing rather than coming to us reactively when there's a, crisis and they're underwater on a matter, kind of, as I said earlier, because that not only is the problem for them internally, it's a problem for us now, right? Because if they come to us and 
they're way under on a matter, and there is good reason for it. There was a material change in work, right? We're going to have to go to finance, and we're going to have to get perhaps get our reserves adjusted. We're going to have to do things like that, and there's going to be a lot of questions around that. Um, so the more proactive we can be, the better there. So I'd like to see kind of the reactive nature of fee discussions come to an end and transition it to a more proactive discussion, whether it be in the form of quarterly reports or for some matters, large matters, maybe monthly reports on what's the status of this? Where are we? The answer might be everything's green. We're good to go. Um, it might be, hey, coming up in a month, there's going to be a hearing. This could go one of two directions. If it goes left, we're okay. But if it goes right, we're going to have to talk about a material change fee adjustment because it's going to dramatically change the matter. Giving that heads up to the client, it helps them not only to be ready for it, again, have their finger on the pulse of the matter, but also it allows us to brief our business clients, our finance, our friends in finance, et cetera, so that nobody's caught off guard in the whole kind of universe of that representation, if it makes sense. Absolutely. And, and let me ask you this. Why do you think firms are so hesitant or um, I guess fearful would be a good word for it as well. Why do you think they're so fearful about communicating those changes? Because that would seem like it would be kind of a, a, a business no-brainer. But at the same time, it's something that consistently comes up in conversations of, hey, you guys need to communicate when changes happen because the, the impact flows downstream. Why do you think firms are so hesitant or, or fearful about doing that? Well, a few reasons I, I, I would say that I've seen. Uh, you said, you know, it'd be a no-brainer business move, right? Well, the, these are lawyers, you know what I mean? So there's some of them that are thinking more and more like business people. There are some of them that think like lawyers, right? So that's one reason. Second reason is all lawyers, both in-house and outside counsel, not all, most, I would say, that I've come across, um, hate talking about the money. They'll talk about the substance and the nuance of this motion and that motion, you know, till the sun goes down, but having to go back and talk about, you know, Hey, I need more money here or X, Y, Z or in-house having to say, Hey, we looked at your proposal and you're going to have to come down a lot because you're simply way too high. Basically saying, you know, you aren't worth what you're asking for here. Right. Those are difficult conversations to have because immediately after an in-house lawyer would say that the very next thing out of his or her mouth might be, oh yeah, and I need you in Des Moines, Iowa on Tuesday for a deposition, right? So <laughs> those are difficult back-to-back -back conversations to have. So I think there is that fear there of you know coming and asking for more money or on the flip side, telling somebody that they're not going to get as much money as, as they think they should. Um, those are difficult conversations to have. But again, that's where I think the, the smart firms and smart clients have transitioned those conversations to people like me and my counterparts on the law firm side, because those are conversations that we're more used to having and more comfortable having. And quite frankly, you know, w w when you have good relationships on the business side at the law firm and the client side, I think personally, the business folks are more frank and transparent with one another. Um, not in a bad way that, you know, lawyers aren't transparent, but we're willing to give maybe some of the harder, the harder feedback or, 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 or the news maybe you didn't, you, that you probably didn't want to hear, I think flows a lot easier from business person to business person generally. 
than it does from lawyer to lawyer because you know they they, they still have to work with each other right on a day to day basis oftentimes in very very stressful situations so if you can allow them to focus on the lawyering and allow the business people to focus on the business then everyone's doing what they're best at um, so so I, I I think that's where you're seeing, I mean, the firms that we're using more and more, and it has nothing to do with me, but the firms that have made themselves easier to work with in that business sense, those are generally the firms that have seen their footprints grow just because I think our attorneys like working with, because there are great lawyers everywhere, right? There are a lot of great lawyers and, and, and we deal with great firms. So those small differentiators, um, I think are very impactful. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head too. those, those conversations and you know, you can, you can look at a various you know, array of different reasons, but I think that business to business conversation is so much easier to have that way. The things that need to be fixed can, can continue to be fixed and you're, you're being attentive to the client's needs. You're being, you know, you're communicating as you should. I mean, it really comes out of the golden rule, basically, you know, if, if, if you put that same person that doesn't want to communicate in a scenario where somebody didn't communicate something important to them, how would they feel? How would that impact them? And how would that, how would that transfer everything in their day? So it's, it's that golden rule effect. So if you know that something is going to impact your client and put, you know, potentially their clients as well, think about how you would feel and then exercise that, that activity and do what you need to do to take care of your client and remove that hesitancy or that fear, because at the end, it's going to develop to be a great relationship. Because at the same time, I think we can all say there are going to, things are going to happen. Things are going to come up. Nothing is going to ever flow. It's, it's like anybody who ever wants a perfect wedding, not going to happen. Something's going to go wrong, but that makes it part of, part of dealing with it. So it's really communicating those changes, setting the expectation and then it's it's really a service recovery standpoint at that. You know, it, it's really saying, okay, here's what's happened. Here's where the break is. And here's what we're going to do moving forward. And here's the expectation that we need to reset. Is everybody okay with that? And how do we get, how do we get back to good on this? Right, absolutely. And, and, and as you said, you know, there are always going to be things that are going to come up. And I think, again, back to kind of the fearful thing about going to a client and saying, this thing changed or this didn't go our way, so it's going to be more money. Those are hard conversations, but they're conversations, quite frankly, that need, that need to be had for all the reasons that we've talked about earlier. They're conversations that need to happen. And if, if the business folks can, at the very least, facilitate that flow of information and that exchange of information, uh, it just makes everything run much more smoothly and much more efficiently. Sure. Because there's, there's nothing worse than a problem that is that is you know, fizzing underneath the surface that you're not communicating it about. And you're trying to fix it before somebody catches it and then it blows up in your face and it could potentially ruin a client relationship, frankly. So it's, it's better to be over communicative and have those, have those conversations. Right. And, and, and part, and part of our firm, firm relationship meetings, it is the, it's not just all the rosy feedback, right? Because we solicit feedback from our managing attorneys that have used, you know, those firms significantly over the course of the last year and we asked for, you know, can you rate their performance over the last year, right? And can you tell, you know, can you tell us the highlights, the lowlights, what you'd like to see them do differently, kind of to, to your question earlier, what you'd like them to stop doing? Um, is, there an, is there an issue with a particular partner, right, that needs to be communicated? 
And in those relationship meetings, we don't only give the rosy feedback and how much we love you, right? We'll also say, okay, here's the difficult part of the, of, of the conversation. Here's some of the feedback that we received that maybe isn't so glowing and something that you need to take back and address. So again, you know, it's, it's those difficult conversations that, you know, it's hard to communicate sometimes from the, from the in-house attorney to the outside lawyer, because again, you got to work together on a day-to-day basis. So if you have somebody else that can facilitate that flow of information, it not only gets it out there, right? Because oftentimes the law firm might have no idea, right? So now they've received that feedback. Now they are aware of it. Now it's incumbent upon them to take that back internally, communicate that message internally, and make the necessary changes. Sure. And, and I think that's that's the one thing that I, we, you know, I, I constantly convey to firms that if your clients are giving you feedback, positive and negative, that's a good thing, especially if they're giving you negative feedback. Because, you know, if you think of yourself as a consumer, if you have a bad client experience in any kind of purchase whatsoever, especially a high dollar purchase, you're not going to go back. If you're not giving them feedback, you don't care. You're not bought in. You're not, the relationship is not established. So the likelihood of you sending them a, you know, Hey, thanks for the memories. We're, we're moving on to another firm or, you know, I, I, I joked in a presentation one time about sending a, a breakup mixtape. You're not going to do that. You're going to, you're going to walk away. You're going to find another firm. You're going to, you're going to replace that firm. But if your client's giving you even constructive criticism or some sort of, you know, maybe not glowing positive feedback, that's actually a great thing because they want you to be better. They want that relationship to enhance. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it, and, and hopefully people don't have to have to Google what a breakup mixtape is or what a mixtape is. Hopefully they're, <laughs> I think I may have just dated myself pretty good there, but, um, but no, I, I, I think everything that you've hit on is, is, is just fantastic. I think every, every point that you made is, is very relevant and impactful to firms and how they manage their relationships moving forward. And, um, again, you know, I think these conversations keep coming up from clients saying, Hey, here's what we expect. And I love the way that GSK handles a lot of these, these things. And a lot of it's unique, you know, unique to, to me. And I hope it, it resonates with other clients and other firms. Um, but it, it really is. It's all about communication. It's all about transparency. And it's all about really understanding that the relationship needs to be a two-way street. So let's, let's engage and let's make it better for everybody. So one conversation we have with firms is how are you leveraging your younger partners and your, your elder associates in the client relationship and what visibility are you giving them? What advice do you have for firms on how to leverage those types of people within the client team? I think one thing at GSK that we, you know, that we definitely look for, obviously, you know, we want the, the strong partners. Absolutely. Right. Everybody does. Um, but how are you, how are you showing GSK that you're developing your junior and mid-level and senior associates who are going to be our lawyers of tomorrow, right? Um, how are you, are you getting them in front of your clients so they know who they are? Or are you keeping them back in the home office and they never see the light of day, right? I think it's very important. Definitely, it is different from firm to firm, the way they showcase associates to us and the way that they kind of have their succession planning. There's one firm in particular that, does it, that has done it outstandingly well in the uh, patent litigation space. We, we, we had a lawyer there uh, for many, 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 many years and very trusted advisor to the company. Well, it got to the point where he retired, but they had groomed junior partners, senior associates, et cetera. So GSK was very comfortable. The work didn't leave that firm 
uh, and, and new work continued to flow to that firm even after that senior partner left because that senior partner had gone into more of a kind of a oversight role toward, towards, towards the end of his career. And we really were comfortable because they had worked with us. They knew our attorneys. We knew their attorneys, right? Those new, more junior attorneys. And it was a very comfortable transition. We've seen it happen at other firms where there was, you know, one or maybe a couple of partners that were our key partners for ages, but they really didn't have behind them those folks coming up that they were showcasing. And when those partners left or that partner jumped to another firm, the work went with her, right? So, or the work just went to another firm, right? So um, I, I, I think that the best advice I would give is, you know, how are you showing GSK? How are you getting your, your relationship partner or partners of tomorrow in front of your clients so that there is that comfortable, uh, that, that comfortable feel and an ease of transition as either an attorney moves towards retirement or from a firm continuity standpoint, that attorney would move to another firm, right? Are you going to lose that work because we don't know anybody else on the team and we're simply not comfortable with, with people we don't know, right? Um, so that's the advice I would give there. Even, even if you try, so if you have somebody that is your main relationship partner that's, that works with you for years and years and years and years and years, and then all of a sudden you know, announces that they're six months out from retiring and, oh, by the way, here's the new person that you're going to be working with. That, that to me, doesn't really set up a really good relationship moving forward either because it's like an afterthought. And if you're not looking at it as a, a true engaged relationship between the firm and the client, I mean, it's, it's respectful to say, hey, look, and it's not like they just decided all of a sudden that this is what I'm going to do. They kind of have a, a, a good vision of the future. And so if they're not, one, to your point, consistently bringing additional team members, especially young partners and elder associates, um, but if they're laying out that, that path well ahead of time and there's familiarity, then you all of a sudden don't feel nervous. I mean, imagine going to a doctor and your doctor walks in one day and says, oh, by the way, I'm retiring tomorrow. Here's your new doctor. You know, good luck. That just feels weird. So it's kind of the same premise when you're when you're talking about engaging and and say, you know the succession planning with your firm with those with with those relationship partners as well. Right, and 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 there's and there's also the history there, right? And, and your example about doctors, yeah, hey, I'm retiring tomorrow. Here's your new doctor. You're going to have to explain your whole medical history to this new doctor, right? Or on the client side, and hey, here's your new partner. She, she has six months to kind of get up to speed on, on, on GSK. That's no good, right? But if, but if there's a transition, not only does this relationship, outgoing relationship partner know what's going on currently, but knows the history in the background, so do these junior partners and these senior associates because they've been around and servicing this client for a number of years. Yeah, I think that's that's an often overlooked element of the client relationship. And I think um, obviously those firms that do it, do it very well. And I think those that don't can take a very strong lesson from those that do, uh, because it is really, really integral to the relationship of the between the firm and the client for you know the duration of the relationship, which hopefully is decades long, because you want that, that connection and you want that level of service. But yes, yeah, I, I completely agree that familiarity with the client and with the, the history is just absolutely beyond critical to maintaining a solid relationship. 
Well, Justin, I greatly appreciate your time today and your insight on everything. And this has been a fantastic conversation and tons of takeaways for, for firms to really benefit from uh, GSK's approach to engaging outside counsel and the things that make a difference. And I think there are a lot of times that a lot of different pointers are shouted within the industry and a lot of things are brought up. But until you hear it from, from the client uh, directly, it's sometimes they don't make as big of an impact. So I appreciate you taking the time to share all these insights. And, and hopefully there are a lot of firms that take notes and start making some changes if they've got some deficiencies at this point. My pleasure. I certainly appreciate the invite. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Coach N Podcast. To learn more about how we can help create industry differentiation for your firm through business development, marketing, client services, and more, visit society54.com, where you can view our full scope of coaching and consulting offerings. Ask yourself, are you in?